Welcome to Side Effects, Effect versus Affect. It's hard to know the difference. At McGowan Braybender, our goal is to provoke you to think differently about employee benefits, your employees, and the status quo. That's why it's Side Effects with an A. Join me, Kenzie McEvely, an MB co-host, and one of the industry's brightest guests to dive deep into the process of good employee benefits. Let's get started. Today's show is about a serious topic that has affected our country in the past five years. In 2017, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services declared the opioid epidemic a public health emergency, with Montgomery County, Ohio as ground zero. Today, we're introducing Marty Taylor, the president and CEO of 115, a nonprofit ecosystem dedicated to the full and sustained recovery of people living with addiction. Marty started her career in 1986 after graduating from Capital University in Columbus, Ohio, with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. She began as a staff nurse in the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit at Duke University Hospital and graduated from Duke with a Master of Science in Nursing in 1993. During Marty's 25 plus years at Duke, she fell in love with academics, research, teaching, clinical care, and mentorship to others. During this time, Marty supervised all aspects of the Health Systems Heart Center at three hospitals and multiple affiliate hospitals. Her resume is impressive, including serving as president of the St. Joseph's Cardiovascular Program and Research Institute in Atlanta, and as CEO of University Hospital and the Ross Hart Hospital at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Marty's strategic leadership, organizational development, and incredible heart has driven the success of 115. Sit down and buckle in as we take you through the inception of 115, the full continuum of care they offer, and how they're saving lives every single day with this innovative, evidence-based treatment and recovery model. Welcome, Marty, to the show. Welcome to Side Effects. I am joined today by Scott. Thank you for being here. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. And we have a wonderful guest, Marty. Thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Good morning. That, that was quite the impressive. I'm, I apologize for the long intro, but you had a lot of good things I had to throw in there. So and very there, you impressive. Know, I was like listening to that. It would be like if I was introduced, Scott McGowan. See you, McGowan. Right yep. <laughs> Period. Yeah, period. And we're done. <laughs> no, yes. no. And we're done. Yeah. So we're so excited to have you here today. And actually, Scott recommended you to me. So can you share with our listeners how you and Marty know each other, Scott? Yeah, so I'm a really good friend of uh, Tini Rishash, who's in charge of the marketing for 115. Right. And mm-hmm. we bumped into each other at the pharmacy. We were just, we'd known each other from church and known each other for a number of years. Uh, and recovery has been a really important part of my life for a long time. And I love... Um, uh, helping the lonely, broken, tired, and afraid, those people. And um, she mentioned 115 to me, and I was like, wow, like I'm really curious about that. And um, she said, hey, I should probably introduce you to Marty. And then we got on the phone, and we started talking. I'm on the board of the Dayton Development Coalition. Uh, and I started hearing about you know, the investments from the hospitals and what 115 was all about. And, and then you were kind enough to ask me to sit on the advisory board. Uh, and I just, uh, I adore your organization and love your heart and love everything that you're trying to do to serve people. So it's wonderful. Well, we appreciate your support and your advocacy of the work that we do, Scott. It's been tremendous and, um, we're not done yet. That's for sure. Absolutely. And so while we're starting to talk about 115, Dayton, Ohio, we talked how it was Montgomery County was 
ground zero for the opioid epidemic. So mm. can you shed light on why Dayton? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so in 2017, it really was sort of, of ground zero, and I don't know that anybody was really proud yeah. of, of that fact necessarily, <laughs> but you know, per capita, the number of overdose deaths in Montgomery County at that point in time was one of the highest in the country. Um, unfortunately, here we are in 2021, and we're almost back to that same point um, across the country. But Dayton, um, as we all know, is known for innovation. I mean, the birthplace of aviation and so many fabulous things um, that happened here and, and, and continue to happen. And so as we were sort of saying, gosh, where would we like to do this work? As we looked at the, the history, the rich, rich history of Dayton, and also the collaboration that was already occurring here as the opioid epidemic in 2017 was really sort of happening and, and, and so much needed to be done, we found a community here that no matter where in the community um, people were living or working, everybody realized they needed to lean in and help sort of work on this problem together as a community. And so that was sort of a bright shining spot for us to say, you know what, we want to start this work in the innovation city, the gym city. So that's well, how we landed here. You know, one of the things I too, that. I mean, it's still a national problem. Yes. And it's yes. such a misunderstood and there's such a stigma attached to it, mm -hmm. unfortunately. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and so if you think about like, you know, where does this begin? Uh, and I've always been told that um, uh, maybe it's with alcohol or with drugs is, you know, sometimes people don't have a drinking problem. They have a thinking problem. Mm. And that's where it, be that's where it begins. Sure. Yeah. So maybe help our listeners kind of understand, like, how does this begin? Yeah. Why is this such a big deal? Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, I, you hit on it, Scott. I think when we think about stigma, the stigma is so real. And while, you know, I think there is a lot of, spotlights on the stigma issue now. I like to think of it as we're trying to move stigma now to science. We really want to understand what it is about addiction. What can we do to understand, to help people with what we believe is a chronic disease? Um, and so Verily, as one of our founding members, uh, the, the CEO of Verily had a vision back in 2016-17. Verily creates integrated health solution platforms and they're an alphabet company. And they were doing and continue to do work in depression and anxiety. But when the opioid epidemic was really, you know, sort of everybody across the country realized, like, wow, we really need to do something about this opioid epidemic. Um, Verily said, what can we do to help? And so that's where, for me, as they started to talk about how do we move from stigma to science and really start to understand this and get the data and, and understand the data. Verily likes to talk about collecting data, organizing that data, and then activating the data and giving it back and saying, now, how do we make a difference? What can we do now that we understand this? How can we help clinicians, you know, sort of do something with this data and make it better? So Verily really was the original sort of visionary. But then again, as we decided that Dayton was the place to do this, we found fabulous collaborators to start to work with. And two at the top of the list were Kettering Health Network and Premier Health System were two of our, our great collaborators. We have many more too, but that's sort of, you know, where I think all of this started was back with a vision that Verily said as a data science healthcare tech company, how can we help to, to lean in on this? 
Yeah, we do that for our customers all the time. So we'll talk right. about diabetes, we'll talk about COPD, we'll talk about chronic disease. Mm -hmm. And then when we bring up mental health or substance abuse, we just put it in that bucket. That's mm -hmm. right. And so yeah. I think what, what I love and adore about this platform is the fact that it's just adding contemporary language mm -hmm. to a problem. That's right. Uh, and then how do you take that data and how do you provide better outcomes? Mm -hmm. And then hopefully it meets our vision of delivering healthier birthdays um, to people. That's, That's what we're right. hoping, uh, hoping to do. So I never heard of Verily until 115, I, I feel like, was in the news a ton. And I know there was kind of some confusion back with being connected to Google as an alphabet company. Can you kind of explain the history of the organizations coming together again a little bit more in detail with Verily? And sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Verily is an alphabet company. Mm -hmm. It's a, The best way to think about it is it's a sister company to okay. Google. Okay. And so... Um, we really focus in on healthcare and data analytics and the science behind things. And so that's where um, I think in the space of addiction and substance use disorder, there's just not a lot known. When our clinicians practice every day, they practice evidence-based care, but there's not a lot of evidence to say what works in the addiction space. Right. And so that's where Verily, you know, sort of came to the table and said, gosh, we think that there is something here that it's it's a high-tech, high-touch solution. Okay. That was the original vision to say, it's not all going to be a technology solution, but we need to couple technology with high-touch. Right. And so we need to provide the best care. And as Scott said, our ultimate goal is we want to get the best outcomes for our patients at the lowest cost. I mean, we always try to do those two things the goal. in yeah. tandem, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's sort of where we, we started back in 2017, 18. Right. And one of my one of the most impactful things, I think, is your guys' name, 115. Mm -hmm. Can you share with our listeners where that came from? Yeah, yeah. So it's a, you know, it's a, the, um, as most startup companies are, we went through a lot of different names. Oh, I yeah. think we looked at about <laughs> 90 different names or something and landed on 115. And I remember having a lot of conversations with people about the name because at that point in time, late 2017, 18, fortunately in this country, we were losing 115 people every day to an unintended overdose. And, you know, you think about that, 115 people every single day. It's just, and, and in Ohio alone, it was 13 people every day wow. that we were losing. So it was, it's really to honor and to respect those individuals that we're losing, but it's also to sort of, you know, put a, put a mark in the ground and say, all right, we want this number to get better. We want to be less than 150. Unfortunately, here we are in 2021, the number's gotten worse. Yeah. Well, I think if you stack, you know, unfortunately, you stack mental health on mm -hmm. top of substance abuse, mm -hmm. on top of COVID-19. Yeah, that threw a wrench I, into things. And that's a gigantic sandwich that's that no right. one was prepared. Right. And then going back to, like, Dayton, Ohio, and, mm -hmm. like, being the epicenter mm -hmm. of that. And, and so even the economy of this town over time. Mm -hmm. And just so even, like, watching... Um, the plant close here, GM, which mm -hmm. is, you know, right down the street here. Yep. Mm -hmm. And watching, you know, organizations really, really struggle mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in our community. And one of the interesting things about our community is the fact that, you know, we're not run by one. A lot of communities are run by uh, whether it be, well, if you're, in, uh, if you're in Columbus, it's, you know, nationwide. It's limited brand. It's, right. 
large anchor employers. If you're in Cincinnati, it's P&G. And mm -hmm. in Dayton, what I love about it is it's just a lot of smaller organizations that are just fighting. And we all get along. Yes. We all get <laughs> Very along. Very collaborative. Yeah. Yeah. And w what are some of the other contributing factors when you guys decided on, hey, let's put a pen in Dayton? Yeah. You know, I, I think the, the number of folks that we interacted with, so at the time, um, Sheriff Plummer, who now Representative Plummer, you know, having conversations with him and sort of understanding, like, what's happening in our jails every day? Mm -hmm. And to hear the number of individuals that were detoxing in the jail without the support necessarily around them. Now, that has moved tremendously in the right direction. And so Sheriff Strzok is a, a great supporter as well. And that entire team has done a lot of work to say, you know, it's just not okay for people to be detoxing in a jail the way that they previously had been. And that's not specific to Montgomery County. That's across the country. Mm -hmm. But there were things like that, that it, as we would hear those stories, as we heard about what the hospitals were doing together. So Gadaha is a, the hospital association and hearing that, although I'm sure some days competitive in the, in the healthcare sector, the hospitals were all coming together and say, saying, what can we do together to help? Um, and, and so again, Premier and, and Kettering have been great founding partners for us as well. But to see hospital organizations working together. The partnership with the Adamant, the local Adamus board and Helen Jones Kelly's leadership and really sort of stepping up and saying, what can we do differently to in this community to really make an impact? Um, the mayor, of course, you know, Mayor Whaley was always sort of saying to us, like, how can I better support you? Some of the first conversations I had with Mayor Whaley is she would say, you know, I want to know the day that 115 has made a difference and say people don't have to leave Dayton to get good care for addiction. Mm -hmm. I think when we think about where good addiction care is, usually the name we think of is Betty Ford Hazelton, mm -hmm. and they are a fabulous program. Mm -hmm. But people shouldn't have to leave Dayton. People shouldn't have to leave Ohio to go to Minnesota to get right. good care. And so we want to partner with all those great organizations here in this community and optimize and, and make things even better. I love Dayton, so that makes me very happy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think even in the addiction space, and obviously you said there's people, there's places across the country that are wonderful, and they mm -hmm. are. Uh, but my experience in recovery uh, normally is just um, getting on a plane or a car. Um, you take those problems with you. Mm -hmm. And the real secret is the fact that the real problems are back here That's where you right. live. That's right. And when you, can, when, you, when you can deal with that locally. Yeah. And unfortunately, and you understand this, and as, you know, diseases like poverty, there's a lot of money in it. Mm -hmm. And in substance abuse and mental health, mm -hmm. just like there's good doctors, yeah. there's bad doctors. That's right. There are good organizations. There are bad organizations. That's right. And in, in substance abuse and in mental health, we don't do a very good job measuring the outcomes because mm -hmm. we don't spend enough time understanding it. That's right. That's I mean, I talked to a father um, last night. He's got two children. Um, one is in prison. Mm -hmm. One is, um, uh, uh, unfortunately, serious problems with alcohol. Master's degree from, you know, Ohio State. Yeah. Um, very competent person, still working. Mm -hmm. And then he was talking to another uh, father who lost his son and daughter last year mm -hmm. to, um, you know, to uh, drug overdose. And I think even for some of us, um, you know, and you said something too, unintentional overdose. Mm -hmm. Like nobody thinks I'm going to use because I want to die. That's right. Fair? That's right. Ugh. 
and it's just such a it, it's it, it's such a misnomer in this world that right. really what they're trying to relieve is the pain that they have going on in their lives right. whether it be marriage whether it be relationships whether it be kid whether it be parent i mean just pick one that's right they're just numbing that pain yeah. and they don't want to die right. unfortunately yeah. they make a mistake yeah and oops yeah, and we, it's, that's so true. And, and we really, you know, have a commitment to say, how do we make sure it's not just about sort of the treatment, whether that's 20 days in treatment, whether that's 200 days in treatment, but how do we also create those wraparound services to support individuals? How do we help them to get back to supportive employment? How do we help them with housing, if that may be? How do we help them with family reunification if they've burned many bridges, mm -hmm. you know? And so those wraparound services for 115 are another part of our commitment. And, and again, we have found fabulous partnerships here in Dayton of employers who say, you know what, a second chance is really important for these individuals and we want to work with you to get these folks back to work. So, so Marty, we talk about data-driven medicine and how 115 is based around that. Isn't all substance abuse treatment kind of handled that way or... Is there still a lack of data when it comes to addiction in There's medicine? There's a big, big gap in yeah. data for addiction, yeah. And I think some of it goes to there haven't necessarily been the resources. Think about something like heart disease. And I spent a lot of my career in cardiovascular mm -hmm. medicine. And think about something like the American Heart Association. You know, I don't know. Let's pick up the newspaper today and look at obituaries and see, you know, if somebody passes, they may say, gosh, you know, I would like, you know, if someone's going to give a memorial to go to the Cancer Society right. or the American. How often do you see that people are saying, I really want to invest and figure out addiction and let's support this. And that's not, that's not a fault of anyone. That's just where we are as a country. Mm -hmm. Again, there's sort of been this shadow cast of, you know, let's not talk about addiction. Let's not talk about mental health. And so because of that, we haven't had the science investment to say what is working what's not working do we have clinical trials do we have research happening do we, what is happening in this space to really move it forward like cardiovascular disease right um, right was back in i remember back in the 1980s somebody would come in with a heart attack and we didn't know a lot of what i mean it would kind of go someone would you know we'd put them in a room in the hospital we do a little bit of supportive care but not much more Mm -hmm. But today, if you have a heart attack, you know what causes a heart attack, you know how to prevent a heart attack, you know what to do after you have a heart attack, you have a roadmap of what to do. Mm -hmm. We need that in addiction medicine to say, for this individual, this is the best treatment option for them. We just don't have that today. Right? If, you could, if you could pick the data set that you would need, like the data you wish you could have, like mm -hmm. imagine if you will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's funny is, so uh, Marty and brought a team of people from Verily and, and we were talking about this earlier, but they were really young, like younger than my children. <laughs> One was a professor. <laughs> I was like <laughs> acknowledging I was the dumbest person in the room. <laughs> but they're really smart people, uh -huh. really smart. Uh -huh. But if you think of it, and I love your analogy between how much money we invest in heart disease mm -hmm. versus what's missing in substance abuse and mental health. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the data points that are missing, what, what, what would some of those data points be? Sure, yeah. First of all, we need a lot of data, right? It's mm -hmm. not just, we're not just going to find out, you know, sort of what works and what doesn't work with 300 patients. I mean, there's a lot of data that we need to collect. And we can. There's a lot of addiction in this country, so we need a lot of data. 
Um, understanding sort of what levels of care are best for individuals. Does that individual need outpatient care? Do they need to get into an inpatient residential program? What is the sort of right level of care for them? And I think that is something that, again, we don't have the decision support tools, if you will, for our clinicians to say, you know, Kenzie came in today. Here's what she's struggling with. Here's what her current information is telling me. I think she needs to go into this level of care. We don't have those sorts of decision support tools. So I think that's one. I think another is to, as I've mentioned, sort of these wraparound services. In this space, in, in substance use disorder, we can't ignore what we often now refer to as social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. What else is happening within that individual's community, sort of within their own ecosystem? And how do we really think about the impacts of that as well? Because it may be that they're struggling with food insecurity. It may be that they're struggling with transportation and they can't get to an appointment. So there's all sorts of other social determinants of health that we need to understand those um, as well. And then I think, you know, and this is again where I love working for a company like, like, like Verily and partnering with them to say, are there other technologies like passive sensors? Are there things that maybe it's that Fitbit that I'm wearing today that <laughs> over time that's going to turn into something that can help say, I'm about to have a craving. I need some additional support right now because whatever physiologically is happening within my body, I'm about to have a craving and I need that additional support. So there's all of that sort of data as well that we'll want to start looking at over time as we build these sensors and, and other sorts of technology to help us understand. Yeah, great stuff. That yeah. data would be incredible to have. Yeah. So as we talk about 115 being so innovative and groundbreaking, mm -hmm. can you explain the treatment process and the full continuum of care that you guys provide? Sure, yeah. yeah. So we are really pleased that we have, a, again, so many great partnerships that made this happen. But we have a five-acre campus um, sort of just across the bridge from the University of, of Dayton in the Carillon neighborhood. And, and just a shout out to our Carillon and Edgemont neighbors. They have been wonderful neighbors for us. At first, questioning, why are you building this here? We're not sure we really want a five-acre <laughs> addiction treatment in our, in our backyard. Um, but um, that what we have built out is the entire continuum of care. So everyone's journey is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But I would say for the most part, many of our patients come in through what we call a crisis stabilization unit. And they may come into the CSU or the crisis stabilization as a self-referral. A family member may bring them in. We may have EMS providers over time drop them off at the crisis stabilization unit. They may come from one of the local hospital emergency departments who mm -hmm. say, gosh, you really need to go over to 115 and, and that's the, the level of care that you need to be in. From there then, again, the clinicians work hard to say, what is the next best level of care for this individual? It may be that they go into outpatient treatment for the next 30, 60, 90 days. It may be that they need to go into acute detox. And that's what we call a 3.7 level of care. And we have um, about 15 beds um, wow. in the Kindred facility um, that, uh, that are detox beds there. It may be that they go to a little bit lower level of care called inpatient residential, and perhaps they stay there for 20 or 30 days and start to rebuild some of those skills that they need to sort of get life back to where they need to be and get through that acute uh, detox phase. 
And then we have a new building that opened, um, and, and those levels of care, we partner with Samaritan Behavioral Health. They, they provide the direct care. And then we have a new building. It's a three-story building. It's a total of 58 beds, 29 rooms um, that we call 115 Living. And that's a little bit less intensive medical care for individuals, but they can stay there for, again, 30, 60, 90 days until they, it may be that they need to get back to a job. It may be that they need to get back and sort of rebuild relationships with family. It may be that they need other sort of supportive skills that will help them build over time. But it's not a prescription to say, you'll stay here for 28 days and then you'll do this for 10 days. It's what that individual needs, but it's every level of care on that one campus. That's incredible. And if you go there, it's like a really cool place. <laughs> it sounds incredible. Five acres of yeah. a campus. Because, you know, I think, and, and, and it's not even saying that there's other organizations in town that, you know, that aren't doing good work because there are. Absolutely. But mm -hmm. aesthetically, it's very appealing and it's refreshing and mm -hmm. it feels like it feels different. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, um, so, and I can take the bus there mm -hmm. or my mom could drive me or my dad or my sister, whatever. I can go, I can have my problem in it in where I live mm -hmm. and I can get help in the same town. Uh, and it's pleasing to the eye and it feels welcoming. And there's, there's, and, and even talking to a lot of employers about that is, uh, I love the economy of our community is how do we keep the resources in town? That's right. Yeah. And I think employers are, you know, they want to invest in that. They want to believe in that. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so we're just really grateful that you decided to invest in Dayton, Ohio. Thanks. I do yeah. have a quick question. I, sure. I don't want to say convincing the neighborhood to let you build there, but how did you get them to feel comfortable with building this treatment center? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, we work on it every day. Um, and yeah. it's about trust and it's about sort of saying this is what we plan to do and holding steadfast to that commitment mm -hmm. and sharing with them why. Again, a lot of what we talked about today around the stigma and the support that individuals need and, you know, the, the help that we want to give them. And so, um, you know, we spent a lot of time early on even talking about the, you know, did the campus need to have a fence mm -hmm. around it? And that was a really interesting sort of debate, right? Yeah. And if you come to the campus today, you'll see that there is a fence and there are there's really nice landscaping and all with that. But really where we landed in many, many conversations was to say we want it to feel aesthetically pleasing, as Scott said. We want it to feel like the community is welcome in. So the gates are open and if folks want to come in, we have a really nice walking path mm -hmm. that is call it our path of recovery. It's not a straight path because recovery <laughs> is not a straight path. Um, but if folks want to come in and, you know, walk their dogs, there's a basketball court and we want the community to be part of that. But at the same time, we respect that we need to have it be a safe campus as well. Right. And if there is something that happens on the campus, if somebody is really struggling or something happens there, our 24-7 security officers are always there to help. Wow. Um, but those are the sorts of conversations that we had to have with the neighborhood early on and continue to have those conversations. We meet every month with our neighbors and, and talk about how things are going. That's so, awesome. That's so if so I important. go through this, this treatment um, through 115 mm -hmm. and then I leave 115. Mm -hmm. So, and then all of a sudden, so what, if it's inpatient, then I go, then I go back home mm -hmm. and I'm, then I'm surrounded by potentially mm -hmm. some of the problems that I, that I have. So how does 115 then support, 
like add that additional support for that for that person yeah. once they leave. Yeah. So our peer specialists are fabulous individuals, and our peer specialists are those with lived experience, and so so they stay connected with our patients. And it may be at two o'clock in the morning that somebody says, "Oh, I need some help." Mm-hmm. And so our peer specialists are a really important part of the clinical team. Um, even though they're not a psychiatrist or they're not a nurse, they are just as important on that team because they have that lived experience. But this is an area then where we're trying to supplement that and say, how can technology help? So we now have a new companion app, we call it, or a patient app, Cool. we call it. And it's really all about staying engaged with individuals. Mm-hmm. And so things like making it easy for them to make appointments, but also making it easy so that they can get in touch with us at two o'clock in the morning if they need to. So our patient app or our companion app, as we call it, is all about engagement and keeping folks engaged in their care, even if it is six months down the road and they still need a little bit of extra support. Yeah. yeah. We've talked a lot about the problem and the treatment mm-hmm. and 115 stands out in many ways, but what are some reasons why it's unique? I know you said the high tech, high touch, mm-hmm. but what else makes it unique? Yeah, I think um, I think the partnerships I would call out as number one. I mean, we have really worked hard to say we don't want to replace anything that's happening in this community. We want to be able to help and, and, again, sort of supplement what's happening. And so we really look to all those partners to help us with that. Um, the continuum of care, having every level of care on one campus is, is a bit unique. The technology that, um, you know, we have a team of software engineers a dozen or so in South San Francisco who wake up every day thinking about Dayton, Ohio. Wow. And saying, how can I build technology to help clinicians and patients in in the addiction space? And then the data analytics. And so how do we really take that? And it's not that we, you know, as we continue to learn, we want to make sure we're sharing that information broadly. So we're just about getting ready to do a publication we're getting ready to do, you know, go out on the road and be at conferences and talk about, these are very early learnings of right. some of the things, but we don't want to hold that data in as we learn it. We want to spread the news and say, here's what we're learning in Dayton, Ohio and our, at our innovation hub. Mm. <laughs> and were you going to say something, Scott? I was going to ask, what is the data saying? Do we have any data right now? Yeah, so early on, I would say, and and again, this may not be really unique coming out of a pandemic, but we've really started to to look closely at what do we learn with hybrid care? Because during the pandemic, like others, we had to quickly pivot and say, how can we support people even if they can't come on our campus? Mm -hmm. And so um, that's some of our early learnings is to say, how did hybrid care work? How were we able to treat people virtually? And we're finding that virtual care, if you have someone on video, is really a good way to treat individuals. Not for everyone. Some people need to come onto campus and need that face-to-face interaction. But our, as we call it, hybrid care with virtual care in there is pretty effective. Um, We're finding different cohorts of patients don't adopt technology as quickly as others do. So that's been another learning for us. And then we have to figure out now how are we going to support those cohorts of individuals and, and make sure that you know, technology is, is something that they're comfortable with. So those are just a few snippets of some of the early on things that we're starting to see. Even in, even in some of our data, one of the things that was really interesting is we had in our population, 
roughly 21% um, of the population is on, on an opioid today. Mm. Wow. Uh, and that drug can be very effective. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, it can be very ineffective mm -hmm. uh, for people. That's right. And um, normally a pill will lead to a needle, and then the needle leads mm -hmm. to destruction. But then, you know, all, you know, in regards to even marijuana or alcohol. Sure. And all of those different issues. And what I love the fact is like you're measuring like all of that information. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? And I'm not sure that's ever been even tried no. or attempted. Now, I think everybody's like doing their best. Sure. Everyone's trying really hard. That's right. But without that da data, it's mm -hmm. really hard to provide that's right. um, a, a treatment pattern and best of class outcomes. Yeah. Because I think one of the things that, that Dayton, Ohio recognizes is the economic cost of this problem mm -hmm. is um, way beyond most people's comprehension. That's right. And, and, and it's not – we're not even – we're just not a, a tackling this problem just, to, just because of the economic cost. Right. But when you can restore someone's dignity mm. and then they get a job mm. and then they share with friends and then they begin to help other addicts mm. and then they have a family. And then they buy homes. Right. Um, they can be the heroes of, of a community. Yeah. And that's where the beauty comes. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen all the time. That's right. Uh, and unfortunately, um, uh, it's sometimes it results. But when it happens, mm -hmm. the beauty of restoration and redemption is one of, the, one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my entire life. That's right. And they may stumble a few times, but we're always there to catch them. Yeah. And pick right back up and, and uh, keep going. Yeah. Would you say the average patient has, you know, face, age, personality? What what do we see coming in? You know, addiction does not discriminate. So it's really sort of across the board. But, mm -hmm. you know, as we start to look at some of our average or, you know, sort of median statistics, it's we're seeing about as many women as we're Whereas we're seeing men, I think wow. our average age is right around 40. Um, roughly um, about 60% uh, Caucasian and 60-65% and Caucasian, 30-35% people of color, uh, primarily, primarily African American. Um, you know, folks employed, folks unemployed. Right homeless. I mean, again, it does not discriminate. So That makes it feel extra scary, too. Yeah. It could be your neighbor. It could be a family member. Yeah. Just don't know. Yeah. I do think, you know, through the pandemic is there have been folks who have said, gosh, getting treatment virtually mm -hmm. is a good option for mm -hmm. me. I don't want to be seen coming onto your campus. Right. I don't want to, you know, expose myself to running in to someone seeing me going to 115. So that has been one thing that I think we've we've learned too is that for some individuals to have that sort of an option where we can treat them and treat them effectively virtually. Um, you know, we've, we've learned that for sure. It's a game changer. That's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, one of the things that I think a lot of people are curious about is um, it sounds expensive. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, obviously I think on, on Medicaid, mm -hmm. right? So what if, you know, um, is it covered by Medicaid? Mm -hmm. uh, and then obviously you would said the, the large portion, portion of the folks actually are employed, have a job. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what, what, is that, what does the reimbursement process look yeah. like? 
You know, I think the it's one of the things we need to study, right? We need to understand the total cost of care. Once we say this is the right level of care and this is what this individual needs, then what is the total cost of that? And we need to be able to share that with the payers and say, this is what it costs us for an average day or an average week in, in care, and this is what makes a difference. Maybe a little bit more expensive to start with, but if it prevents three readmissions to the emergency room, that total uh, sort of expenditure is going to be much less. And so that's where we want to ultimately get to is to be able to say to CareSource and, and Anthem and others and say, you know, here's what we have found on you know, sort of the cost side of this equation. And so we're not there yet. Um, some of the payers don't cover every level of care. So even for us to be able to advocate why we think that entire continuum of care is necessary, um, we have many of those conversations today too. So um, there's a lot of work to do to understand what does it really cost, but then to also equate that to value and better outcome. That's what we want. That's, That's what we right. want to talk about. Because even in our conversations with Gardner Health, 31% right. of the providers deliver high quality, best outcome healthcare, mm -hmm. which results in lowest cost. That's right. That's right. So if we can figure this out, yeah. we can say to employers, yeah. hey, best outcome, right? Yeah. Uh, and then lowest cost. And I think also then that's how you roll this model mm -hmm. into different parts of the country. Yeah. Uh, but it is, uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big problem. Mm -hmm. It is a big problem. Small steps. I would like to say my Amazon Smile account is connected to 115. Thank you. So all Thank profits you. from my Amazon shopping goes to 115. Thank you. That is an option. And I, I obviously greatly support this in nonprofit and everything it does. So, yeah, little little uh, teaser there if you want to change your Amazon smile. Well, yeah, you, you, we you, love that. You have to show me how to do that. I will. I'll I will. show we'll you after this. We'll do that when we hang up. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Um, I do have some more stats that I learned in our pre-call mm -hmm. um, that you guys were hoping to treat 1,000 people in your first year, mm -hmm. and you actually hit that in seven months. Is mm -hmm. that correct? That's right. And yeah. so what What do you guys think? How many more are you going to treat? What's the What's the outlook here in the next few months. Yeah, so I think right now we're at 20 months mm -hmm. um, that we've been providing care and we phased that care in. So, you know, we started, you know, with outpatient care and then opened our crisis stabilization unit and then the inpatient residential and then ultimately living. I think 20 months in, we're at about 3,500 wow. patients that we've seen. And that's translated to about 10,000 telehealth visits. Um, yeah, it's it. The numbers are quickly growing. Mm -hmm. So, which you know just tells us that the need is still there, mm -hmm. and we need to make sure we're accessible to those that need our care. So we're also thinking about how do we make our care more accessible? Right. Do we take some of this technology through telehealth hubs and put telehealth hubs maybe in rural parts mm -hmm. of Ohio where? You know, there's not enough access to addiction care. Um, or even Wi-Fi or, that's you know, right. and yeah. that would be amazing. That's right, yeah. So when you guys are full steam going, COVID comes. Mm -hmm. So can you explain how COVID affected you or did it not or did it help or how did it happen? I think, yeah, I mean, I think for our patients, for many, the sense of isolation, you know, they really struggled with that. And so we tried to be mindful to say, virtual care is not going to work for everyone. So how do we still bring folks to campus, 
being mindful of all of the, you know, social distancing and all the things that we needed to do there. Plus, there were some individuals that some of our providers were working, you know, sort of in their homes. But if if some of our clients didn't have a smartphone, we needed a way for them, if they needed to come onto campus, to still have access to their provider. Right. So we sort of re-outfitted some of our clinic space and turned those into you know, a video session where they could meet with their provider. So their provider may be in their home, their clinician, their, their psychiatrist, their peer specialist, their nurse practitioner, but the patient was actually on our campus. So I had to think of a lot of different ways. In the technology, I think our number one message to the software engineers that were building the technology was mm. make it easy. Yeah. yeah. Not three different passwords, three different ways <laughs> to have to log in. Like, you know, make it. There's a running joke in the company. Like, if Marty can figure it out, <laughs> anybody can figure it out. So make it such that Marty can figure it out. That's nice. As we kind of wrap <laughs> up, um, I could talk all day about this because I care about it Me deeply. Too. And I know you do too. Yeah. So, but maybe just help um, our listeners maybe understand what, like, what kind of like drew you to this mission? Why, mm. why is it so important to you? Yeah. Yeah. So as you very kindly in that introduction, um, talked a little bit about my background. I spent most of my adult life in North Carolina um, and then came back home to Ohio about 10 years ago to see what was happening in my home state. It was really sad. Um, and Ohio's not the only state that's going through this. But I thought, gosh, how can I help with this? To see then that there was a company like Verily who was, as a private company, wanting to partner with public companies and others to say, how can we help with this? And just my desire of, you know, sort of learning. I am somebody that's just always in that discovery. I'm just always hungry to say, there's so much more I can learn. And how can we help others? And so just had a call into it. When I started looking at the numbers, I think I was, I had turned a blind eye to it as well. And so when I started to look at the staggering numbers, I said, gosh, there is so much more work we can do here. And I, I want to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. we're so grateful that, uh, you, are, you know, I'll, I'll talk to a lot of parents that maybe mm. their kids are dealing with things. Right. And then they'll be like, I don't understand. And the only response that I have is be grateful you don't. Because if you did, you'd be just like them. Yeah. And um, when you can eradicate that stigma. And 115 does a beautiful job of doing that aesthetically. Yeah. And, then, and then internally. Mm -hmm. And you take all of that and you smash it together with data and best outcomes. And mm -hmm. healthier birthdays and low cost. And better economy for our community right. and, and all of that stuff is just uh, is just beautiful. So we yeah. appreciate uh, your heart and your Thanks. passion. That, so clearly 115 is doing incredible things and we are so appreciative for you, your staff, all of the doctors and everyone working on this. Okay. If people need to get in touch with 115 or if they need help, how can they get that help? Certainly you can go to our website, which is 115.org. Or if you need that immediate, our access care line is 937-535-5115. Love it. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you, Marty, so much. Thank you. Unfortunately, we're out of time, and we could have talked for many more hours about this. Um, but if you have any questions um, or comments about this episode, you can email me at Kenzie at HealthierBirthdays.com. Or myself at Scott at HealthierBirthdays.com. We will put all of Marty's information and 115's contact info on our website. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll see you next time on Side Effects.